listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Thanks for downloading this episode. UWA is committed to an inclusive society where every life is respected as unique and valuable. Visit our website at pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au to see how you can join with others in the UWA community to create positive change. All right, thank you for checking in to this episode of the Pursue Inclusion UWA, and this is co-branded with Executives After Hours. This is your host, Dr. James Kelly. Today on this episode, for this really special initiative at UWA, I've got Andrea, and Andrea, I want to make sure I say your last name right, Comber? Coomba. Coomba. Yeah. I should have gone with my Australian accent. Yeah. You should have. (laughs) Well, thank you for doing this. Could you just quickly give the UWA audience and my own audience a 10,000-foot view of who you're at and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm, uh, for the last almost five years, I've been the director of a very old law reform and human rights organization in the UK called Justice. Before that, I used to do international human rights litigation. So I represented individuals before international human rights courts in cases against their government. And yeah, before that, I was at UWA and qualified as a lawyer in Australia. <laughs> so, you know, we don't end at the director of justice, right? Like, that's not where we kind of end in our life. Sure. So, so let's, what I'd love to always do is kind of back up a little bit and tell me where you're originally from. Uh, well, I'm originally from Perth. My family are all in Australia. So I've been based in the UK. Well, I came here to study in 2000. I've been here solidly since 2002. Um, but I'm, I consider myself, I mean, I am British, but I consider myself pretty Australian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I spent my early childhood in Fiji and then in the bush you, in Australia. Do you remember Sorry? what it was like? Do you remember what it was like in Fiji? Yeah, I did. It was really nice. How did it impact you? Um, well, let me put, I, we went there when I was two and left as far as five, as far mm. as four. And lots of my earliest memories are from there. They're largely of my mum kind of in beautiful dresses that she'd made herself um, <laughs> going off to events, leaving me and my sister with the house girl. So I think we were sort of looked after by Salotti and Makita a lot. Yeah, what? but it was, I mean, it was, it was a, I mean, I, it's, you know, early childhood memory. So sure. it's like little bits and pieces. It's where I learned to swim. It's and it was happy. funny because in the, yeah, it's totally happy. When I was in the, in so 2004, 2005, I started doing human rights work in Fiji um, and so I had to fly from London to Fiji a number of times. Um, and the Fiji Human Rights Commission, who are our local partner, had this beautiful office in Suva overlooking the whole city. And I went to the director's window and looked out onto the pool where I learned to swim, which was amazing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so it was wait, really why cool. Was, why was and we, your family and I went there? hunted down the house we lived in. Um, <laughs> that we were there because my dad was... So 1975, Fiji became independent from Australia. And he worked for the Bank of then New South Wales. Um, and he was his job was to go out there and to teach the Fijians how to run banks because Fiji was becoming independent and then they sure. wanted to, I guess, build the capacity of local staff. So that's why we were there. Um, that's awesome. And, yeah, it was really cool. But it was also, like, it's, it's really funny because subsequently places I've gone, like I used to do lots of work in East Africa, and the first time I arrived in Entebbe in, in um, Uganda, it just reminded me so much of Fiji because it was all lush and green and there was, you know, cane fields and all that kind of stuff like I, it they're memories that sort of recur every now and then mm-hmm. so so, yeah. then, so you're in fiji obviously at five so this is 
Mm-hmm. You're starting to form your, 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 you know, Andrea personality, if you will. Oh, so. Christ, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah. What, t- what took your family to the bush after that? Uh, da- again, my dad's work. So he yeah. was a, a bank manager. So we lived in, in little country towns, like tiny country towns, where, you know, there were a handful of kids in the class sort of towns. How long um, were you just hopping along to country towns until you ended up Well, in yeah, I mean, I guess it, 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 I was I, able to make friends really easily. Like that was, I guess, probably the biggest thing that came of that kind of life is just sort of being uprooted and having to start again and sure. make new friends and build new relationships and then also leave them, which is, yeah. um, which I've become much worse at, I have to say. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, really, um, it's really interesting you say that because my wife was a military kid and she had to move yeah. all the time. And, and I always say that, that she is phenomenal at making friends, like not a problem. But keeping friends, when she moves, it's almost like it's a chapter that's closed and she just kind of starts again. Are you kind well, of in a similar way? Yeah, no, I've, I've really changed. I mean, we, so we, I moved to, so we moved to another school when I was sort of well, 11. Um, and then there, there wasn't a high school that sort of would take me all the way through to the end of high school. Um, so my dad's company, the bank, offered to pay for me to go to a private school in the city. So I went as a boarder uh, to a private school. And so since then is kind of when I have my friends, other than my family friends, like my parents' children, mm-hmm. um, parents' friends' children. Um, but like my own friends, I sort of started from boarding school at the age of 12. So I don't have those kind of early childhood Did you friends in the same way as other people. Yeah, at Perth. So I went to a school called St. Mary's, which was yes. um, in the North Carolina. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was there for a couple of years as a boarder. Um, and then the family came back to Perth and I became a day girl. Um, and <laughs> I like that term. Yeah, I like that term. Um, so, um, yeah, it sounds but, less risque in some ways. I'm a day girl. No, it is. <laughs> exactly. I just do days. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I have like since then, like I, I stay in pretty close contact with my friends from then. Like I, I kind of didn't let them go after yeah. that. Um, so, so the friends so what, I've had since high school, I mean, a number, not a lot of them, but a number of friends I've had since high school. I'm still what in year is this? Like what year is this? Uh, that I was start... boarding school, yeah, 1985. Yeah. 85, okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, w- I lived in Perth from 2006 to roughly 2010. Yeah. And so do you go back to Perth now? Yeah, look, I w- so I left, skipping forward, I left in 1998 to go to India. And we'll go um, everywhere, and I went, by the way. So we yeah, won't... yeah. And I went, <laughs> so, so I went, I've been back every single year bar one um, mm. since then. Um, and I'd go back, I had for, for a long period of time, I had a job which was really flexible. So I'd go back for kind of six, seven weeks, eight weeks over oh, the wow. summer. Um which was great because my work was uh, was based in London, but it wasn't actually in London, so I didn't really need to be here. And then I was still doing that, like going back for kind of a month until my son turned five. And in England, you can't miss a day's school after you turn five because you, your parents, well, the parent gets sort of fined <laughs> and it goes on your permanent academic record. So since my son That's turned five, insane. we can go back much less. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, really, it's properly terrible. Um, yeah. So because his, his long holidays, obviously, in August and August yeah. in Perth, you know, isn't the best. Um, so I, um, yeah, my, so, my, my summers, my kind of Christmases in Perth are mm-hmm. a thing of the past until he's 16. And so like when you go back, like I would, the question, I guess I was asking the question from the point of view is, you know, you're there in your formative years, then you, you know, we'll get mm-hmm. to UWA in a second. But, but <laughs> have you seen the city just transform over the last 25, 30 years? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You, I mean, certainly yeah. the central part of the city. Sure. I mean, I haven't even... 
I haven't even been into the city, truth be told, and my mum will eventually listen to this, so she'll catch me out. But I haven't actually been into the city for the last two or three years, and I hear all about kind of Elizabeth Key yeah. and all that stuff and it's all so the bars and how wonderful it is. But that's not what I do when I go back. I just kind of go to the beach. So yeah, right. <laughs> um, even the beach, the beach light fundamentally hasn't changed. So, yeah. um and do you yeah, find it hard, like you're kind of like the square in the round hole when you go back because life is kind of no. permanently the same? Or do you kind of um, like ebb and flow right back into the vibe of Perth when you go back? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, it's funny because I have a very, very different life here. I mean, my life here is all about kind of politics and mm-hmm. and the news and, and current affairs. It's all kind of quite hot, quickly paced, whereas my life back at home – it's not. It's uh, because because it's been largely holiday for the last twenty yeah. years. Um, it's uh, you know I become a self-loathing beachgoer and don't really watch the news and and I um yeah and I love it. And my friends uh, back at home, I mean, don't have the same kind of life I have, and um, they have a life I guess I could have had. Um, mm-hmm. But not the life I have, and so which is great, and they're really happy, and so I just slot into their kind of mm-hmm. lovely barbecue and kind of going to the Somerville and all that kind of stuff. Lives, which is you know amazing. what I think is what I think is awesome though is the word you keep using is home, even though you haven't lived there for yeah, it's definitely home though. I mean, know. and when I'm in Perth, I call London home. I mean, I guess I feel a, it's <laughs> like true. ambidextrous, ambidextrous yeah, totally. homey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the second I get back to London, I mean, I think I feel a connection to London as a city that I've never felt to Perth as a city because Perth isn't a city in the same way London's a city. So describe um, that to me. Like, how do you mean that? Well, I mean, I live in central London, so I live right in the heart of the yeah. city, and. And, you know, it's a my office is around the corner from St. Paul's Cathedral, which is a 25-minute walk from here. And the British Library and the British Museum are a 10-minute walk away. And um, and I love the architecture and I love the light. And I love, I, I love the history and I love all of that stuff. And Perth, like, I mean, the city of Perth, I worked there when I was, you know, a new lawyer. Um, but, you know, you don't really, if you live in Perth, spend much time in the CBD. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not really what you do. Well, if you're me, you just hang out at the beach. Yeah. Like, that's what you do. Um, so, and uh, and I love that, and I miss that a lot. And so kind of, you know, uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm not very linear in my thoughts because I'm kind of curious No, no, that's fine. Neither am I. Uh, <laughs> I got that actually from the from, the, quick, the, from the quick pre-call. I got that. <laughs> and so I kind of want to dive back into in choosing UWA. I mean, I know that... You know, historically, I'm, I'm from the U.S., and so historically in the U.S., we travel for our university, where yeah. in in Australia, and I'll use Perth specifically, people don't travel. Like, they just kind of stay in W.A., and unless you're out in the country, mm-hmm. then you come down. So so you go to UWA. What, what made you gravitate towards law? I mean, really a process of elimination. I mean, I... Um, <laughs> I love Well, that. it is. It was. Yeah. It's terrible, but true. Um I, I was the same. My, um, I mean, my, my, nobody in my family had finished high school, let alone going to university. I didn't know about university till I was eleven, and my year five teacher said I was very bright and would have to go to would go to university, and I had to then have explained to me what that was. Um, so it wasn't like it was an expectation. I mean, we we're expected to to work hard, and my mum knew we were bright, but it it wasn't like a thing. Um, mm-hmm. so there wasn't that parental expectation. Um. I went to UWA because I, I wanted to do something with my brain mm-hmm. and I was really appalled by blood and so I didn't want to do medicine, um, <laughs> which is ironic because I ended up doing such gory kinds of law that, you know, I may as well have become a doctor. Yeah. Um, and then so when I did law, you did a year in another faculty first. Um, so I did started doing arts 
So I did history and politics and English and stuff. And then after a year, people got into law school and then a small number from each year were able to do a joint degree. So I was... I've got marks good enough to go into a combined law and arts degree. Um, and I think it was probably because by then I'd kind of realised that law might be a way to do some good. It was more vocational mm. than a history degree would have been. Um, and and so I did. I mean, but, but, but when I say I did law, I mean, I was pretty lacklustre student. I mean, I wasn't lacklustre in terms of marks. I was lacklustre in terms of turning up and, and applying myself. I was. Sure. It was a time when everybody got jobs from the law school and, you know, we just went and had fun, so I kind of set up clubs you, and you know, had a really nice of, time. Do you think part of that is due to the fact that at least I don't I think it's shifted now, but at least when you went to school there, that you got a law degree at twenty twenty one, right? So from a maturation standpoint, you're in a totally different place than if you go back at twenty five, twenty six. Yeah, well, my my degree because it was a combined degree and it wasn't sort of set up to be a combined degree, it ended up taking six years. So. I was oh, wow. kind of 23 by that. Yeah, it was long. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and it wasn't very hard, like on reflection, like, you know, it, it was not a really big workload. So it probably could have been a bit quicker and now obviously <laughs> is. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and I, and I didn't really, you know, as I said, I, I didn't really kind of turn up mentally to law school, right. but I managed to have really good exam technique. So I kind of got through pretty easily with good marks, which is much to the annoyance of some of my friends who really applied themselves. <laughs> There's no question. You're one of those. You're one of those. Yeah, I used, no, I used no, to. No, I used no. to hate those. I was so yeah, bad. Some at of my testing. friends did too. Like, a couple of weeks a year, they wouldn't talk to me. But so, yeah, so I was lucky. Can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? I wanted to kind of back up a little bit because you said something earlier that sure. I, that I find really interesting, is that you talked about no one in your family went to university. That your dad was at least it seems like fairly successful traveling around, running banks, and being bank manager. Mm. And so, did your parents never? really see university as a way to change the trajectory or to enhance your path? I mean, did they just kind of think just be the best Andrew you can be regardless of university? Well, I mean, they certainly didn't use those words. Um, <laughs> but no, I think my mom, um, my dad didn't believe, this is going to sound funny, didn't believe in the education of girls. Mm. So he thought it was all kind of, you know, that the women just didn't need an education. Sure. Uh, and so it was all kind of left up to my mom, who was... I mean, I think she, from a really early age, threw herself, well, from us being an age, really threw herself into kind of building our confidence and our abilities. And I mean, lots of, I realize now that all of the games she was playing with us were all educational games because I mm -hmm. try to do them with my son and he calls me out on it and says, Mommy, you're really testing my memory. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, but like it was, like a lot of it was kind of, you know, educational fun things. Um, and so she wanted, she, and she knew we were bright. So I've got two younger sisters. And I think she wanted, like, she wished that she'd finished school and she knew she could have done more. Mm. And so actually when we came back to Perth and I was in boarding school and doing really well at, at St Mary's, my dad said, right, well, the bank's not going to pay anymore, like, you're out of the school. And my mum stood up to him and said, no, the girls are staying in the school um, and went back to work full time. Like, well, I mean, she worked kind of part time, mm -hmm. but like the whole, every single penny, well, the cent that she earned over the next however many years went to our education because he wouldn't stump up for it. And was there, um, so like, that was, was, there tension? was there tension? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was, she kind of wasn't allowed to work when mm -hmm. we were younger. And, and then she, she did, and she was only working for our education. So, I mean, she, she certainly never kind of put that pressure on us at all. But it was kind of like, you know, when you, you do something, you're meant to do it properly. Like, that was, I think, the expectation. And so what did your dad say as you've matriculated through life? Like, I, does he... 
Does he think oh, he, he no, I've no idea. He he walked out on mum when we were nine, when I was nineteen, which was all for the best. Oh no, he's you know, yeah. not the best. Um, okay. so he he kind of has been out of my life. There've been mm. bits and pieces where he's come back into it, but but I'm kind of done. Yeah. <laughs> to say. So he uh yeah he he would I mean I don't know I suspect he'd probably yeah. be proud of me but I I don't really know. It'd be an interesting. I mean, if you ever reconnect with them, it'd be an interesting question to say, like, do you still believe the same thing, or have you evolved as a human being? Oh, they yeah. wouldn't. They wouldn't be conversations I could have with yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would like. Yeah. No, I mean, he yeah. would. You know, there's he, probably he, other he issues was... you would probably want to talk about before you got to that. I would. I, do you know what? I don't want to talk about anything with him. I'm done. Right. Like, right. I've, I've kind of tried. I've been there, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's one I of those mean, things in life. Behaves pretty poorly, off, right? Like, you get to a point yeah. where you have to cut people out. Yeah, and I haven't really. I mean, I'm not a cut her out of people of people i kind of have all the same friends yeah. i had when i was 15 but but like with him there comes the time i think it's particularly when i had my son i thought actually no like mm-hmm. i i can't sort of protect him from you and i don't really think it's fair yeah. so um and look my mum's gone on to to meet kind of 20 years ago nearly a, a fantastic man who i'd be thrilled to have of as my biological yeah. father <laughs> um so so, and, you know, he, he's my son's grandpa and, and that's yeah. all great. Yay, mom, you know. Exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah. for years of being horrified by kind of, you know, the prospect of your mom having a boyfriend. Sure. Um, it's, uh, no, I'm thrilled. It's been really great. And, and so did, did, did then I know that um, one of your sisters did pass away like seven, eight years ago, but did, all, did yeah. all of you go to university and all of you kind of start pursuing professional careers? Well, Jay, my younger sister, um, Jane, became a physiotherapist, and mm-hmm. she was, yeah, she was amazing. Like, she was one of these kind of thirst for knowledge, life mm-hmm. learner people who was amazing. And my younger sister was talented, which got in the way of formal education. So she's a really talented musician. So she's sort of has uh, has dappled in, in academic academic studies and stuff, but, but fundamentally is a musician. She lives in Nashville now. She's just oh, wow. doing really well. Mm. Yeah. And so it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. Now, your sister who was the physio, is this the one that passed away? Yeah, she's the one who died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she died seven years ago. She actually died two weeks after my son was born. On, on the day he was meant to be born, mm-hmm. on his due date, she died. It was terrible. Bloody yeah, hell. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how do you, I mean, were you guys all very close as a family? I would imagine yeah, you guys Yeah, I mean, of, certainly yeah. mum and the girls were close, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Jane was my my sister who died was two years younger than me, whereas the other one was much younger, seven years younger. Um, so growing up, it was much more kind of me hanging out with with Jane. Jane. Um, because Louise was so much younger. Sure. I mean, it seemed so much younger. Obviously, it's not now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when you're twelve, a five-year-old yeah. seems you know really juvenile. No, no, no. My, um, my, my oldest so, son is nine, and my youngest is two. So it's it's kind of the same, you know, yeah. idea. And that's and fine it. when you become a grown-up, but when sure. you're younger, it just Whereas, whereas Jane in the middle, who was only five years older than Louise, you know, she was able to kind of pick who she wanted to be hanging out with and playing with. She got to pick and choose. So she'd have to have fun games with Louise and all the educational yeah. games with me and yeah. mom. So, all right. So, I mean, obviously you have this, you know, one, I have a book coming out in the spring, right? And one of the, one of yeah. the concepts of this book is, is this idea of the crucible and how yeah. the crucible really can help define you as an individual or at least recenter you and make you become more self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses and maybe nudge you in a direction. So just thinking about, you know, your sister and, and the life you went on, you're leading right now. I mean, mm. what kind of impact did your sister's death have on you from a, from just a personal spiritual, 
moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, like this, some yeah. people kind of br brush death off, like, okay, it happened, let's move on. Some embrace it and, and reflect on it and evolve, you know, or was it some of these things where you're like, this is shit and that's life and let's move on? I mean, I certainly haven't moved on. I mean, I think I've just accepted that there'll always be a long missing. And there are certainly times when, like, I'll see something or there'll be something little happened and I think, oh, God, I have to tell Jay. And then I'll realize, mm -hmm. well, that's not going to happen. Like, mm -hmm. um, but he has, like, I mean, because I had my son at the same, who's the only child I've had and will have, at basically the same time that I lost my sister. I mean, having my, losing my sister has had much more of an impact on my life than having a child. I've no, I've no doubt about that at all. I mean, it's it's kind of, I guess for me, I mean, I get annoyed when people complain about birthdays and getting older. I'm like, like you're lucky to get older. <laughs> you know, I think it's a privilege to get older and, you know, I, I and I've got no time for it because, you know, through, you know, she had cancer, through yeah. absolutely no fault of her own, she kind of won't be able to get yeah. old and get grumpy. And so I, I sort of don't have much stock with that. So you'll get older. Um, and it's been much better in Oh, yeah, I probably won't get grumpy. Really I'm grumpy. kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but, yeah, but, like, you know, it's certainly, um, it, it's certainly a sort of a missing that I think I'll never mm. adjust to. And it means everything else is kind of, you know, pales in insignificance. Mm. So, you know, I've subsequently had a relationship break up that I'm just like, whatever. Like, I can't yeah. deal with anything now. <laughs> because, you know, she, well, my first memory was of Jane being born, like the day mm. that she was born, the day before my second birthday. So she was born the day before me. Oh, wow. Um, I, that was the, that's the first thing I remember is like running into my grandparents' room because my mum was going off to hospital to have mm. my, my sibling. Um, well, I, and so it had, or she'd always been there. And then all of a sudden she's not there anymore. And it's just terrible. When there's that void, right? So my, my dad passed away when I was 20. And so yeah. I think I think for me, one of the biggest lessons, and it sounds like you actually really embrace this now, is that you never know what tomorrow is going to bring you. So don't yeah. don't don't sweat the small stuff as cheesy as that sounds. Like whatever. Yeah, you know? I mean, I think I've had, I think I've known that. I think probably because of my work in India mm -hmm. for a long time. Like I've I've had my life in perspective for a good period of time, just because I've been doing, you know, human rights work that's. You know, with, with people who are extremely vulnerable, mm -hmm. who've had absolutely terrible stuff happen to them. So for a very long time, I I kind of understood that, you know, I've, I've actually I've got it pretty easy. And you know, even having my sister die. I mean, I have friends in who've grown up in Africa, you know, who who've had loads of siblings die. Like that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that that doesn't make it any easier for me, and then make it feel much better. But I understand it is sort of just path of life. Um, so, and we, we kind of, I think, become come expecting that everything's going to be easy and stuff. And it just isn't. Like, nobody's life is terribly easy. And if it is easy, then one day it's going to get, they're going to get yeah. a nasty shock. Yeah. Like, life, I, I, you can't avoid it. You know, I often, um, you know, Mary, it's my wife, so I'll call her Mary, not my wife, since I don't own her. Um, yeah, sure. Mary, Mary, she's never had anyone, or she's 42, has never, almost 42, has never had anyone around her pass away. Not yeah, sibling, parent, grandparent, like sure, her her dad's mother and father passed away. Her father before she was born, and her mom when she was like two or three. So no, no a grandma, like so no big impact there mm. really. But but yeah. I keep I keep saying like you're gonna be in for a, a rude awakening at some point because yeah. you, never, you know I lost every grandparent and dad by probably 25. You know my mom's the last yeah. one alive. So like I kind of got used to death as as callous as that sounds. Mm. You know, um, and I would yeah. imagine I would imagine for you and I kind of want to transition to this a little bit because I think this is a really interesting topic. Is you have this this compassion inside you. Right. I mean, you don't you don't yeah. do the work that you do without being compassionate and having a high level of empathy. So where sure. do you think this comes from? 
I mean, I think my mum's always been incredibly compassionate. Like when we were growing up, she was always volunteering. Like she was doing stuff at the school or she was driving meals around for elderly people. And, you know, it was always kind of expected that we would give back, I think, in some way. And, yeah, and I think I grew up feeling like pretty pretty lucky in lots of ways. Like we, the towns we lived in, there were lots of Aboriginal kids, Indigenous kids who who had life really hard, like, I mean, really hard. And, and they, you know, sometimes didn't have enough food and, like, that was clear to me, like, I knew that. And, and I always felt kind of really kind of overprivileged in a way, which was ridiculous because we had our own struggles at home. Mm, sure. um, but, but, it's like, about there perspective. Was kind of, it was about perspective. And I, I did always feel kind of... Like I was was doing well because because of where I'd come from, and so yeah. So I think it's always been it's just always been there, and it's something I guess I haven't interrogated a lot. But it's you know it's, it's defined certainly my professional life, mm-hmm. and I think you know a lot of my social relations. I mean, my my work is essentially social work. It always mm-hmm. kind of has been, even even to this day. Kind of the work I do is all about building relationships of trust and confidence. I mean, they're their relationships now with senior judges and politicians and civil <laughs> servants. But but it's much more well, the skills are similar. Like they're yeah. the same kind of, you know, personal interpersonal skills stuff. And and that's the same when you're dealing with vulnerable people or or I guess when I was growing up, you know, those those skills kind of had to develop because there were always kids around who were having a real trouble. Um, and, and, you know, and things were, were tough for us sometimes at home as well. So, so you know, supporting mom and all that stuff. So, you know, for me, one of my kryptonites, I guess, if you will, is emotional kryptonites, is seeing seeing children who are vulnerable, who who don't have a say in their future in, in a lot yep. of ways. How do you emotionally go into these situations in Africa, India, you know, wherever, yeah. you're, wherever you're at, and, and, and not become overwhelmed and want to ad- adopt a whole village? Like, how do you not want Well, I did to go through, there? I did actually go through a process of like, wanting to adopt somebody once, which was um, really for the best that I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to adopt a child in India um, who would now be, I mean, I think about him sometimes. Like, I think he'd now be in his 20s, but mm-hmm. he was nine at the time. But he, um, yeah, I mean, I my sense has always been when I went to India to do human rights work, I'd come back and, you know, to Perth at Christmas and tell my friends and people I'd gone to law school with what I was doing, like, you know, helping people who'd been tortured and families of people who'd been executed. And they'd say, oh, that sounds really depressing. Why are you doing that? And I kind of feel like I was doing my bit. Like, it's you know, that life, this is happening every single day. Um, and I can't stop that happening every single day, much as I'd like a magic wand. But, but through my work, I can... I can do my little bit to make things easier for some people and to bring a bit more justice for some people. So so I've kind of always felt like because I'm making that contribution. I mean, there's certainly a couple of years when I was in India where I was working, wanting to work all the time because I'd feel like if I wasn't, you know, getting this person compensation for their torture or putting in this person's application for asylum, then then nobody else would. And at the time, this is sort of the 90s. Like, human rights work wasn't sexy Mm -hmm. like it is today. Like, it was not considered a valid use of a law degree. (laughs) Uh, And people would thought thought it was a stupid thing to do. I mean, now it's quite the opposite. Like, you know, people think that human rights is, you know, great and worthy and it's really competitive. But when I started doing it, it just wasn't. And if I hadn't been taking on doing that work, then there was nobody else who would have been doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I was earning $5,000 US a year to work in India. 
which was more than enough to survive in New Delhi. But, you know, it wasn't like there were loads of people lining up because it was not considered to be a good thing for a Western person. Yeah, it's not a sexy lawyer. It wasn't. Yeah. No, it wasn't a sexy lawyer job. I mean, Amal yeah. Clooney has done that for, yeah. <laughs> has like, you know, made things a little less sexy. Um, but, I was trying to think of her name too. I was like, what is her name? Yeah. What is her name? Yeah, yeah. yeah she's, I mean, she's actually an international criminal lawyer, not an international human rights lawyer. But yeah. like, you know, that, like everyone, I was funny, I was giving a speech, like some conference the year before, maybe last year before last. And, and I was introduced by, um, and it was to a bunch of students interested in international law. And I was introduced as like Andrea Coombe will now address us about the glamorous world of international human rights litigation. <laughs> I had to be like, I, I just ditched my speech and just said, literally, yeah. you know, I, you know, I don't earn very much money, and you spend all of your time traveling, staying in in like awful hotels, <laughs> watching CNN and BBC, unable to call your family because you know there are no phones, there's no internet, and you're dealing with people who've whose lives have been destroyed, and you have horrible dreams. I mean, I've gone through periods where I've, you know, dreamt every night I was getting raped when I'm working on rape cases. Jeez. Like, it's it's not, it's not like a glamorous job at yeah. all. Like, it's a it's a pretty brutal job. So how um, do you keep a sunny that, disposition? I don't know. Maybe I get through it because I've got a sunny disposition. I don't know. Uh, I just, I think I just naturally am. I've always been a happy person, mm. I think. I mean, um, I kind of so, feel like if, if, I was going to say, I feel like if you do your job, you, you know, this type of work, that you have to be able to detach yourself from the emotional side of it and yeah. and be able to kind of think about just the little wins that you get. Because I would imagine when you first yeah. started, you wanted to change the world and that quickly kind of got poo-pooed. Yeah, and you realized, I mean, I, I still, well, yeah. I feel like I have changed the world in some ways. I mean, I've worked on cases at the European Court. So for, for 10 years uh, when I was uh, at Interrights, I did strategic litigation. So we were taking cases you know, test cases, I guess you call them in the US. And, you know, through that, we were able to, like, structurally change the law in Europe on, you know, domestic mm. violence and rape and, and you know, which is which is a big, they're big wins. Yeah, like, they're not yeah. just wins for your client, they're wins for the law. Mm. Um, so I spent 10 years doing that, which was great. And that was, in, in some ways, it was better because it was international litigation. So the case has already gone through the domestic courts and, and lost. And I was dealing kind of with mainly the lawyers who'd taken the cases. So there was a level of detachment, um, which meant that it was easier to, to function on a daily basis. I mean, when I was in India, I'd have kind of grown men come into my office who were double my age and take off their shirts to show me the scars from their torture and stuff like that. Like, that was really, really, really confronting stuff. Mm. And you probably couldn't do that, I don't think, for 20 years. But I've kind of the work I've done has changed over time. So there have, it hasn't been all like that. I mean, certainly the job I do now is like a warm bath. I mean, you know, Victoria sponge cake in the house of Lords is, uh, is not kind of, you know, executed kids in India, but, but like that's, that's kind of the hinterland, I guess. And so uh, looking back at your, you know, obviously you're not like 75 looking back at your historical no. career, but, but at this point, you know, you've had a nice history in international law and, yeah. and human rights. Is there is there a, a case that you know you are first of all most proud of, and is there a case that you are really upset you didn't win? Like, is there are there any of those that you wish it woulda coulda type of thing? I mean, there's certainly things that like people I kind of represented in India in their cases before kind of international bodies where I feel like oh, if I'd been able to get more information or the right information out of them, because sometimes it's really hard to build architects a long time 
to build trust. And I'd have women who would take kind of a year of coming into my office every week to explain to me that actually they'd been raped as part of their mistreatment, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and it, it takes a long time to build those relationships. So I suspect there were some things over time that would have, we could have done, I could have done better had I had more information. I'm not sure I could have done anything too differently, but, and I was like 20, you know, I was 25. Like yeah. when I was doing this, it was really, so you know, intense. Was, it was real. Oh, it was so intense. Like, you know, really intense. Yeah. Um, and I was really intense about it. Like I took, you know, it was all very serious. I'd sort of get up on weekends and not want to waste my weekend. Like, you know, doing normal things. I'd want to go back to work and do more work for these people. Um, and then wins. I mean, I was involved in a case against against Turkey called Opus in Turkey, which is a, the the first domestic violence case that the European Court of Human Rights really decided. And I we intervened. So I was an expert, an amicus expert for the court, and and I I kind of directed everything at the Swedish judge because I thought she'd dissent, and I thought we might be able to get like I mean when you do strategic litigation you sort of hope for some small wins in through dissenting opinions that will then one day mean that the whole court goes with you. And, and we got a unanimous decision basically finding that there'd been systematic discrimination against women in Turkey that meant that the failure to um, kind of prosecute this matter. So basically the lady's mother had been killed by her husband after years and years of domestic violence. And she'd always reported the violence. And, and many times she'd withdrawn her complaint because, you know, he was the father of her children and the same sort of old story. And uh, but, but ultimately, like, nothing ever happened to him. And he, like... He, you know, had stabbed her, he tried to run her over, all sorts of terrible things. And yet he was still kind of at large. And eventually, when she was leaving him, eventually, he pulled up in a car and shot her mother in the head and has been in protective custody. Well, she's had protection of the Turkish government ever since. He's now out and about in Turkey. But it was, it was like, really terrible. But it was great that the court kind of recognised that because the Turkish government said, look, we did all we can, we've got protective measures and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and eventually the Swedish judge actually said, said, well, you know, if you have all of these measures, like, how's this woman ended up dead? Which was the big question. And mm-hmm. so many, I mean, domestic violence kills so, so many people worldwide. I so mean, let, it kills two or three people in the UK every day, so let, um, me, every week. So let me ask this question, then, you know, and I guess let me first ask one question and you can kind of summarize this. But tell me exactly what you do at your job now besides besides talk to seedy politicians like what they're exactly? not seedy no no no. i didn't say seedy sorry, um sorry. they're not seedy uh the ones i talked to are all lovely um okay so my job now <laughs> is um let me think my job now is so i run the charity so i'm the director mm-hmm. of a charity we're 60 years old this year and so i kind of do all the ceo things like you know make sure mm-hmm. that the electricity bills are paid and stuff Um, and obviously as a charity we have to raise money so a lot of money spent time is spent raising money and what's the name getting money out of it's called justice okay so it's a cross-party membership organization um and it's always enjoyed a really great relationship with decision makers and lots of its recommendations over the year have become kind of it's sort of it's, it's shaped the legal landscape in this country in a way that uh, it has been pretty phenomenal. So um, we basically come up with ideas for reform of the justice system, particularly the courts. And so at the moment, a lot of that is around, you know, doing more online, dealing with access to justice problems, because legal aid in this country has been cut back significantly. So looking at how we can actually get people to, to engage in a formal justice system and looking at mental health and crime and rape and immigration asylum cases and all of these sort of things. Um, so my job is, is then about kind of thinking up with uh, with our members and my staff ideas for law reform and then 
selling them to civil servants and senior judges and politicians, which is hence the, you know, cake in the House of Lords. It's so, which is delicious. I have to say, the tourist sponge cake is amazing. So, yeah, that's, that's what I do now. So it's a mix of kind of policy, legal, and we intervene in the courts still. So um, mm-hmm. we, we still intervene in the Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights as kind of experts to the court on particular issues. So we, I mean, yeah, it's a great job. All right, so what I want to ask you, though, is kind of going back, kind of taking another 10,000-foot view, because I really got curious about this idea Mm -hmm. of why do you think in this day and age things like abuse and child labor are still so prevalent uh, around a huge part of the world, really, when you think about third-world countries? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I walked past an exhibition the other day at the Guardian offices around the corner that said that there were more child slaves today than there were like when the transatlantic slave movement was happening. I mean, that's kind of how bad the problem is. I mean, it's not something I, I have really specialised in. I have friends mm-hmm. who, who, do, who do things like that. I mean, fundamentally, like, you know, people, some people will get away with what they can get away with. And, and there are whole economies built on and whole societies built on child labour. And once you start taking away the child labour, you then need to look at what you're left with. Um, and how that society is going to work. So I think it's all it's all very complicated. I mean, for example, when I was working in Africa, one of the cases, the issues I was working on was um, widow inheritance, where in some patrilineal countries, when a woman dies, a man dies, her his wife is inherited by the brother or by a family member, mm-hmm. um, which is ter- terrible, obviously. She has no choice in it. She and her children then kind of go to live with the brother and engage in a relationship like a marriage relationship with them. But the reason for that, if you kind of pull away the layers, is because women in those societies aren't allowed to inherit property. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a way of ensuring that the widow is making sure that the woman, the woman is provided for. So if you take away bride inheritance, you then take away the sort of sustainable life of these women and children. Um, so it all becomes very complicated because the whole society is based around it. So it's a difficult thing to kind of litigate. I think the answers are all, you know, very much sort of societal and changing the way the community works and what it thinks, um, which is why I think lots of the great initiatives worldwide on, you know, things like female circumcision or female genital mutilation and some violence gets women stuff, that the, some really good work has been done by elders in those communities, like the old men saying, no, this is not the way it's going to work anymore because mm-hmm. they're the ones who actually can ultimately change it. You know, I, mean, um, I, li- I live in the Middle East, right? So I live just outside sure. Dubai. And so you see really um, interesting dichotomies culturally here all the time. Sure. And, and so... <laughs> sorry, I'm yeah, laughing because I mean, of the tea. Yeah, I'm laughing because the Sorry, tea it's the kettle. Yeah, yeah. That's the kettle. And the dog's gone outside. He's stolen one of my socks. He's gone to the garden with a sock, honestly. <laughs> go on, Hugo. Out you go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like, like when I lived in Egypt, and it's, I think it's tricky as an expat. I, I mean, when I was in Egypt, I was very much an expat. So when I was in India, I was living locally on a local salary, doing everything locally. Um, whereas when I was in Egypt, my then partner was working for a big gas company, and we were living in a really nice house. And and it's quite hard. It's quite hard to engage with local people and local culture mm. and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, I mean, for, I don't know how you treat this, but like during Ramadan, for example, I used to fast because I wow. just felt it was an easier way to, well, because I'd look around and like, you know, people would be having kind of small car crashes during the day by three o'clock yeah. and, and you know, kind of people were a bit crazy, like doing silly stuff. And 
you'd think, well, actually, it's like it was a way of feeling closer, I think, to kind of my driver, but also all the other people in the community. So I'd fast every single day of Ramadan. And it was great. I loved it. And then I'd finish the day by going for a ride around the pyramids on my horse. And we'd finish with iftar. Like, we'd come back. It was a great way to spend that last hour because there was no chance that I'd sort of start eating yeah. <laughs> if you're on a horse out in the middle of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I'd come home and have iftar and stay up eating sweets all night and invariably put on weight during the month of Ramadan. Yeah. And, um, Which is the irony And, like, of the be up month. again at three. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. And it wasn't, like, it was entirely for social reasons. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I've got Muslim friends who fast in Ramadan. And, again, it's for kind of cultural mm-hmm. reasons. It's not necessarily for religious reasons that they're doing that. Um, but I think it is hard as an expat to kind of engage with the world around you. Um, well, I also think that you, you make a really good you – know, you're demonstrating an attribute of yourself which is really important and you have high cultural intelligence. And so you really try to work on assimilating with, with or within any culture that you go to. And that probably yeah. starts from when you were in Fiji to the bush. God, you know, maybe. To per, you know, because you had to learn to be a chameleon and you learned is your Is your PhD in psychology, James? Um, consumer behavior. Like- Consumer behavior. behavior. Okay, close. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, <laughs> no, and so, I'm just wondering. Like, yeah. Well, because it just makes sense when you think about your history of where you've gone in your life and what you've done. Every place you've had to try to fit in. Well, you went to boarding school yeah. at twelve, and so you've learned to be a chameleon. And what you realize is that to gain friends and trust, if you assimilate to the to their to more who they are, they're going to trust you more. You know. Yeah. So that makes a huge amount of sense that you kind of keep guess. going through this yeah. process again and again. In you know, in a world where Discord gets really all of the headlines, yeah. do you believe that most people in the world really want inclusion? Look, I'm not sure that most people in the world know what inclusion is, if indeed I know what it is. But I think most people want a sort of a quiet life where they can provide and enjoy their families and they feel like they've been fairly treated and they're not struggling. And I think inclusion kind of underpins all of that. So I suspect most people would want inclusion. It's just that people get a bit freaked out by difference and it's harder to accept difference, I think, when you're not exposed to it. So So we kind um, of live in a siloed world, right? Like where you live, I don't know how culturally diverse your area is. but It's super culturally diverse. Is it? Yeah. I mean, my son's, yeah, my son's school, he's 75 plus percent of his class is Muslim, for example. He's one of a handful of white kids in his class. Like, it's super diverse, the whole area. It's one of the reasons I love London. It's one of the reasons I love where I live in London. Like, you know, the UK has got bits of it, obviously, that are as undiverse as anywhere else Mm -hmm. in the world. But it's where we live is super diverse. And it's, as a result, really stimulating. And, you know, since he was very little, my son's known kind of gay married people. And, uh, you know, the first question we ever, the first conversation we ever had about religion um, because I'm an atheist and I'm not, we don't really spend a lot of time talking about religion, uh, was, was when he was about three or four and he asked me why I didn't wear the headscarf because all the other mums in the school, like a lot of them, wear the headscarf. And so we ended up having to have a conversation about what headscarf is about yeah. and Islam and therefore Christianity and what we were and all of this sort of stuff. And I think, I mean, I think maybe, like things, certainly, I'm not sure if it's a generational thing or whether it's just living in the UK, but like there's much more sort of teaching and understanding and and learning about that sort of stuff now than there was when i was growing up i mean it wasn't well, I, any of that well especially in perth i don't think i don't think perth no. is particularly diverse as a it whole isn't. And like it's the, much better yeah, than it yeah. used to be you know yeah. but I, I really appreciate you know the fact that your son is a minority in a school right so my son and daughter yeah. go to a school where half half their class is emirati 
and then there's a you know a bunch that are Egyptian, Jordanian, uh, yeah. British, you know, uh, Australian. Like it's it's a hodgepodge of of the UN. And in yeah. in the full case, you know, in fact, my son belongs to a soccer team where he's the only Western white kid on the team. Everyone else is sure. Arabic. And yeah, so yeah. It, it is a, it is a, oh, it's an award. It's a treasure. It's, it's, oh, a, it's mo- a gift. Like, it's yeah, amazing gift. for them. Thank you. I couldn't find that word in my mind. <laughs> I was trying to come up Sorry. with all the other words around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is. I really but think it gift, is. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, and it's funny how quickly they are to pick up the difference. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when we go back to Perth, and, you know, I know there are some schools in, you know, Netherlands and stuff that are kind of more ethnically diverse than, than other places. But, you know, fundamentally, the, pl- the places we go when we're in Perth are kind of in the western suburbs. Mm-hmm. And, like, every time we've been back for the last three or four times, so since he was three, he's asked me, you know, where, where are the black people, mummy? Like, yeah. everyone here's white. And then yeah. we were on the train last time we were home at, at Easter and he was saying, you know, mummy, why, why is everybody just speaking English? Have you noticed everyone just yeah. talks English here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, there are 28 languages spoken in his school yeah. because it's, you know, his, his first language is Portuguese, not English, because his oh, child wow. mind was Portuguese, well, he is Portuguese. Um, so he was speaking Portuguese to me when he was two. Which was baffling, obviously, yeah. and um, <laughs> he's chewing you out. Uh, so, in Portuguese. Yeah, yeah, he'd be saying stuff, and I, luckily one of my friends was going out with Portuguese guys, so I kept on calling him to say, you know, yeah. what does this word mean? Like, yeah, like, I don't awesome. understand how that's how that's better. Yeah, but like it was, yeah, so for him, it's just a different normal mm-hmm. for him, and I'm sure that growing up, like when he's an adult, you know, his perspective oh, is just yeah. going to be completely totally. different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it already is, and it's funny because we did this big report for Justice recently on judicial diversity. Um, and I make a big effort not to work in front of him. But there was a weekend when I was just going to have to be working on this report because the deadline was close. And I said to him, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to have to work on this report this weekend. And, you know, here's the iPad. Um, and he uh, and he said, what's it on? And I said, oh, it's on judicial diversity. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, you know, mummy's judge friends. And he said, sure. I said, do you notice anything about them? And he said, yeah, mummy, they're all tall, white men. And they're old. And, wow. and I said, yeah. Like, and that was it. Like, he got that. He understood that. He, he thinks they're all tall. I think he thinks everyone's tall because obviously he's seven. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he, uh, but he did like you know he he clocked that all yeah. of the judges that he knows are white men. Like that's that was amazing. a thing, and that's not true. We we do have female judges here, but the ones that that my sons kind of come in contact with are, are all of that demographic. And so, do you think like just kind of based on like what your son is going through, do you think that there is a need to just like, why do you think there's th- that we need inclusion? Like, what is what is the outcome of an, of an inclusive society? Well, I mean, I think the, there's the kind of the personal case, which is around, you know, fairness, so the equality of opportunity and all of that. I mean, I think people are more likely to engage in public life or business life or whatever when they feel like they stand a chance of doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that sort of fairness argument. And then there's just the kind of business argument, which is that, you know, the the best... We, we all the science shows that the best decisions are taken by diverse teams of people. You know, when everybody thinks the same same mm-hmm. thing, no matter how clever they are, uh, you're going to get a poorer result than if you've got a variety of different perspectives. And I think a society where where that changes is, is going to be a richer, you know, obviously more representative and reflective society. But I think we'll just result in better results. So then, why why is it why is inclusion personally important to you? Um, well, look, I'm, I'm obviously a, an example of social mobility, I guess, purely personally. I'm an example of social mobility. I'm a woman. In this country, I'm a migrant, which 
which I mean, I'm I'm, a, I'm obviously I'm white um, and I speak English, but there are still aspects of my life here that are very much a migrant kind of experience. Mm. And and so there there I guess on a personal level, there's that sort of resonance that people like me should stand stand a chance at getting recruited to particular jobs and <laughs> and and being retained and and I also just think that it makes more interesting teams I and mean, when I was at Interrights our legal team came from absolutely all over the world so there were lawyers from Russia and Moldova and Nigeria and mm-hmm. and Senegal and and Uganda and and you know there were certainly challenges of cross-cultural communication um and sometimes challenges of deciding what the right approach was on the law because of kind of the moral ethical differences Mm -hmm. of of people who are working with Um, but it's never dull and it's always kind of stimulating whereas you know other places I mean friends of mine work in kind of really homogenous offices there's much less of that I mean there's much there's much greater calmness and quiet um, but there's sort of just an acceptance of homogeneity which I think is kind of sad really we and like ultimately we women kind of, yeah we like what we know absolutely and mm. i mean what i guess what i've learned is that i mean because i did come from such a diverse organization the last place i worked for 10 years where the place i've built at justice is much more i would hope inclusive and we have a much more diverse ethnic mix than than other similar ngos um and and we have lots of women i mean the human rights movement generally has got lots of women yeah. because it's kind of historically underpaid low status work <laughs> that's why there's no question like that's why it's it's got lots of women because like they're jobs that men wouldn't do because you know, they don't earn enough to be the breadwinner and that's a function of patriarchy and and it's also a function of like the history of human rights uh so you know women it's always been kind of human rights work until very recently has been kind of second income work um for women who've got rich husbands or for people with trust funds and it's yeah, remarkable but- the number of people who are kind of in there, old, older human rights people who literally have trust funds, who've been able to do the work because they haven't had to worry about how much they've mm. been paid. See, I always, again, this is my lack of knowledge, but I always thought that the reason that people would go into that field, particularly women, is that they tend to have higher levels of compassion than men. You know, men Yeah, are... I'm not sure that that's true. No? I mean, there's, okay. there's certainly... Yeah, I don't know that it is true. I mean, that is coming certainly... from a man, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. And look, there are plenty of women who lack compassion, <laughs> plenty yeah. of men who are really empathetic, and and there's also, I mean, I've seen some terrible behaviour in human rights NGOs over the year, like bullying and harassment and and stuff that you know I'd then tell friends, and they'd be like, I can't believe that that would happen in a human rights NGO, but it it does because because there's this kind of messiah complex that people develop that you know you're you're doing this work of a higher calling. And therefore, you can kind of get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, professional HR standards that wouldn't, you know, that you have in any kind of bank or, or kind of big law firm, are violated every single day because people kind of feel like they can get away with it because they've got an overall sense of themselves <laughs> and this kind of, you know, that they're obviously a great person, but they're, you know, being rude to their assistant or, or their colleagues. Yeah. I mean, just terrible behaviour. And I always but, find that interesting when you see these environments of, you know, an NGO that is about inclusion or diversity, but but their behavior contradicts that totally. So, oh, yeah. You know, it's like, wait, what? Like, how are you? No, no, no. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. But, but, you know, and again, because people aren't paid that much, they sort of mm-hmm. feel like they've got greater latitude to mm-hmm. to kind of do what they want. And sometimes what they want is to treat people poorly. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it might be that there is a bit more compassion 
every now and then in yeah. women <laughs> that, that would mean that they'd go be attracted to human rights. But I think it's yeah. largely because the, the, there's more of a pressure on men to kind of earn money and and you don't earn money being a human rights lawyer. I mean, I earn, this, I earn less than a trainee solicitor at a big city law firm yeah. in London. Um, and I've been, you know, out of out of law school for 20 plus years. But that's, I mean, that's happily not anything that's ever driven me. Mm-hmm. So Luckily, I've, got, I've, got, I've got two more questions. One more yeah. on inclusion and then one more that I'm just curious about and then I'm going to let you run. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I've got nowhere to go, so you can ask me as many questions as you like. <laughs> My keyboard's not working. So. Yeah. <laughs> so many people never go up, go beyond diversity and diversity essentially is just being around diverse groups, right? Uh, and they're yeah. thinking about inclusion, right? So they, they think that Inclusion is that next step, essentially. So how do we create a society that, that does more than accept differences, where people engage constructively with each other and embrace the differences as part of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for a start, you need to be exposed to different people. Mm. So you need to kind of understand what difference can bring. Um, and, and there's a tendency, I think, I mean, obviously, people are always stereotyping. I mean, you take one look at somebody and you decide what, what they're going to be like. And, and I think you need to move beyond that. So you need, there's, there's a need to kind of extend your understanding of, of people and where they come from. So lots of my friends have really firm views about women wearing the headscarf, for example. But they've never necessarily talked to anyone who's worn a headscarf or asked them why they wear a headscarf. You know, like there's, there's that need to really be curious, to understand. Um, and then to accept that regardless of what people look like or their sexual orientation or their beliefs, that, that everybody's got an, something to offer. And that actually we all do better when everyone's able to offer in an honest way. So so I think that's, for me, that's, you know, really what inclusion mm-hmm. is about, is about embracing difference and giving everyone a shot at it. I mean, it's that sort of fair go Australian kind of mentality yeah. that, you know, obviously was took popular currency in a time where really most people in Australia didn't have a fair go. I mean, it was only a really small group of men who, who run, who run the country and, yeah. and run business and all of that sort of stuff. And, well, and you know, and the real, the real, real truth is that obviously you're not going to be doing the best you possibly can be when you're not calling on your widest possible pool of, of people. Um, well, and that's life too, right? Like life is so much yeah, than, yeah, for than sure. the white male in his fifties. Like there, there's so sure. many different opinions, thoughts, beliefs, backgrounds that, that can inform, you know, I, mean, you, I, I can even see it, say it from like the U.S. perspective, like just around education. Like we as a country can't look to other countries to inform us of better policies, yep. you know, like just something so simple as, as just an educational yeah. tool. So it, so I think diversity no, sure. and inclusion is such an important thing. So l- last question, because I actually have another interview right after this. Sure, <laughs> last, yeah, yeah. last question. And this is for me. And this, uh-huh. is on, this is from my podcast, and I ask every guest this, but I think it's a really, really interesting question. So, Andrea, for where you're at in your life and for what you do, how do you define happiness? I mean, look, I'm pretty simple. So happiness would be a deep, hot, bubbly bath at the end of a long day where I feel like I've done a bit of good. Yeah, I mean, that's terrible. But that's probably actually what I think happiness is. I like it. No, no, no. That's, well, happy, that, well, happiness that really is like being happy where you are, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of yeah. the mirror of Aristotle in, in Harry Potter. It's kind yeah. of the, the man who looks in the mirror and just sees himself. Like that's what happiness is. Um, I love that But reference. for me it also involves a, a kind of hot bath. <laughs> well, I, hopefully I didn't say your last name wrong. Andrea Kumber. That's great. Well done. Perfect. Thank you for your time, energy, and willingness to sit down with me 
for this Pursue Inclusion WA co-branded with Executive After Hours podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Make the commitment to leave no one behind by taking part in our movement towards an inclusive society. Join an inclusion project or inspire others to act through the great work you are already doing by visiting pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au.